0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. DGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions.
2: 18 plus. Blog talk radio.
1: This is
2: Know It All. Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. Many thanks again to DC High School student Trayvon for our theme music. As you know, we aim to make you, our listeners, know it alls about education law, policy, and practice that affect you. Remember to listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern or at any time from your computer. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at alisonbrownconsulting.com. As you know, yesterday was Memorial Day, so today we are honoring those who have lost their lives for this country by talking about peace, how we can cultivate in our children a desire and the skills to acquire to achieve peace in the world. My guest is Susan G. Burton, the Director of the United Methodist Seminar Program on National and International Affairs on Capitol Hill, where she facilitates social justice learning experiences for students in which they come to understand the intersection of faith, justice, and service. Susan will talk us through what peace education is and what exactly she does in her role with the United Methodist Church. I want to be clear... That we are not advocating or proselytizing for one religion or another, or one religious sect or another. And that is a message that Susan carries further by teaching beyond tolerance, by encouraging children to be advocates for and students of one another across religious lines. And she'll tell us how she does that and why. As we know, yesterday was Memorial Day, a day that honors those who have lost their lives to war for this country. We've also seen some brutal, unprovoked attacks by civilians within the past week in London and in Paris against soldiers who put their lives on the line regardless of policy or politics. We want to make sure that we instruct our children in peace education in a way that will help shape policy while at the same time respecting the sacrifices those people on the battleground have made. Faith and spirituality certainly play a a part in peace education. But the First Amendment is explicit about the separation of church and state. So for our purposes, the First Amendment prohibits schools from, public schools, from endorsing any religion, um, not one religious sect or, or one religious perspective. This is a prohibition that does not apply to students or to private religious expression, and this will be the subject of a future conversation. But students have the right to pray in school alone or in a group. Students have the right to refuse to participate in, for instance, the Pledge of Allegiance, which declares loyalty to one nation under God. My former colleagues at the Department of Justice, Civil Rights Division, enforced the religious liberties of students. There have been several cases there with Muslim female students who want the freedom to wear their head covering, their hijab, to school, Muslim students who want the freedom to pray in school, um, and and other students who want religious freedom and the freedom to and ability to, to exercise religious practices in school. So we'll talk about how students can be advocates for one another within the religious context. I think we've seen conversations about civil rights and race and have a basic understanding of how to be allies for one another across racial lines, but implementation is the next step there. So I certainly want to first welcome my guest, Susan Burton. Welcome, Susan, to Know It All. Thank you, Allison. So, uh, will you start by telling us what peace education is?
0: Well, I want to thank you. This is an honor to be on your show. I have great appreciation for your work. I, you know, when I began thinking about this, when you asked me about this, I went to a quote that I love by American SES Wendell Berry, because I think there are lots of different definitions for peace education, but this particular definition or this idea of what um, leads to peace as he says, it really strikes the chord with me and shapes how I understand peace education. He says, what leads to peace is not violence, but peaceableness, which is not passivity, but an alert, informed practice, an active state of being. So when I think of peace education, I think of a process by which we're developing awareness, knowledge, and skills to examine our own behavior and impact on the world around us, and also the ability to build authentic intentional relationships with others and nature that promote respect and dignity. one of the things I think about is that when I am part of a conflict, I have to be aware enough to know that I have caused harm. I have to be willing to apologize for my part in the conflict, and I have to have the skills to then do something different the next time so that I don't have to, so that I don't continue harming others.
2: Mhm. And, you know, I think peace education has been a strong part of the Montessori curriculum or, or the Montessori practice. Um, and it's something that Maria Montessori was very deliberate about delivering to delivering to children and making sure that children understood their place in the world and that they had the ability to, um, as you say, develop authentic relationships with other children. Um, and that, I think, humanity certainly cultivates a sense of peace and a desire for peace in the world to make sure that we are um that we are being mindful of one another's right to exist in the world um Can you explain exactly what you do there with the United Methodist Church?
0: Certainly, I design experiential learning opportunities for groups of middle school aged all the way to retirees focusing on different social justice issues that are of concern to them. And so we have groups from all over the country that come. <clears throat> some are local church groups, some are youth groups, some are campus ministries, some are uh, classes for credit at different universities. And most of the time they, they choose the topic they want to focus on. And so I would say the most commonly requested topics are poverty, immigration, human trafficking, and environmental justice. And so my job is to pull on, to pull in experts from around the city to engage them in learning about these issues. And my hope is that when they leave, that they're equipped to use their voices in their home communities. And so we do that here. My office is on Capitol Hill. So we do that through congressional visits and or, depending on the group and what their desire is, artistic reflection. And so I have a sense and I know that when they, before they leave here, they've used their voices to articulate what it is that concerns them about what they've learned.
2: And I mentioned earlier that, you know, we are not on this show advocating or um, proselytizing for one religion or another. Um, and that is something that you and your work make sure to um, – to. that's a starting point for you in what you do. Can you talk about how you do that and how you um, teach – your students to think beyond tolerating one another but to to advocate for and understand one another and why you do it that way?
0: So one of the benefits I have in where we work, I work in the United Methodist building, but we are in a building with many different denominations and we work in coalition with lot, many different faith traditions. But what we find is that we have shared values and what we know based on, so the organization I work with is the Public Policy Advocacy Agency of the United Methodist Church. And so based on the statements of the church, based on what people have voted on and said we should be mindful of and be paying attention to, we advocate for different policies, mostly at the federal level, but sometimes at the state level, and also the United Nations. The gift, I think, of this is that we recognize that we are stronger when we're working together in coalition. So we don't, and one of the things I appreciate about where I work is that the United Methodist church doesn't advocate for any particular policy that's only going to benefit United Methodists, that's only going to benefit people who are Christian. And so there are a lot of times we're advocating for issues that there may not be anyone who are part of our congregations who actually will benefit from the policy directly. Um, So that's one part. That's the place where I get to start, which is very exciting to me, because it means that when we're talking about issues, that I can bring in coalition members from all different perspectives. Um, and I think that that's part of it is is modeling that. Uh, that oftentimes people coming here, it could be a small town in Middle America, it could be a large city in another part of the country as well. That oftentimes they don't have significant relationships with people whose identity is different from their own. It could be based on faith, it could be based on race, it could be based on sexual orientation. And so one of the things that that I get to do in terms of designing the seminar is I get to invite people in who are leaders, who can talk about the work that they do, but also in the process of being there, the young people get to see, oh, wow, I didn't know that I could do this kind of work, you know, because of my faith. And also, we get to counter the negative images that people see in the media. So one of the favorite examples for me is after 9-11, there were a lot of people concerned about terrorism and war, and when we went to war in Afghanistan and Iraq, and there was one a friend of mine who worked with, at the time of the American uh, the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee, and he he's an attorney and so he he um, worked a lot on the issues, issues impacting the Arab American community and civil rights violations, all different kinds of issues in that time when there was so much fear in our nation, and he has such an incredible sense of humor. And it's one of the most authentic, genuine people you ever meet. And his faith is important to me. He's a Muslim. And he will come in and talk about his experience growing up in West Virginia, his experience advocating for people who are Muslim at a time in our nation when people's rights were being violated. And he did so in a way that was so accessible to the young people that I know that when he left, not only had they learned about Islam, not only had they learned that there were a significant number of Arab Christians in our country, with whom they could identify, right, in terms of shared faith. But they also left knowing the war and having a whole different image of who someone who Muslim is, different than anything that they would have seen on TV, Mm in
1: front of the media. And so
0: that's the kind of opportunity that I have. I do this because I believe that the messages that tell us to distrust each other, to distrust people different from us, are like the air that we breathe that if we want to end violence and we want to have, we have to have counter images and stories that encourage us to take the time to try different kinds of solutions. That very often in our society, we're quick to respond with violence because we're fearful or we want a quick solution rather than building relationships and thinking about a way we might do something differently.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk um, a lot with <clears throat> educators and parents and others who uh, want to be able to instruct their children um Beyond tolerance right so so beyond a message of i am i am tolerating you though it uh, though that is a reluctant state of being <laughs> um but in a way that will help children to really formulate meaningful relationships and to really be um, uh allies for one another um and and I think there is confusion you know especially from um parents and educators who themselves are Christian um because i think that there is not necessarily an understanding and, and those messages that you talk about that we see of um muslim people and of the of islamic traditions um can be very negative and so you know your message of finding the common threads finding the commonality uh is so important and that is I think, you know, peace is a a huge part of any religious, um, any of the major religions that are practiced in the world, and that that common thread is very important, and that is something that educators and parents can find um, in other religions so that they can use that to instruct their children. Can you talk about how we can teach our children in peace education in a way that will help to shape policy while we also respect the tremendous sacrifices that the people who are on the battleground are making and, and their families are making.
0: Yeah, I think it's I think it's challenging because I think that, that so often the way this is talked about in our society is pretty dualistic. That there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And I think that no matter how we feel about war, we have to be clear that the soldiers fighting are not the ones that are creating the policies that they're upholding.
1: Right.
0: And I think that it's too easy to demonize them. Um, and I think we know that there are many reasons people join are in the military, and until I know them and have a relationship with them, I can't know what their motivations are. Mm-hmm. And so I think that for me, that one of the... We live really close to Walter Reed Army Hospital, the former one, and... I became conscious of the daily images that my children would experience going to our grocery store and seeing soldiers who had missing limbs. And so the conversation was pretty consistent in my house. And my children were really small at the time. And so the images of war, even if I didn't turn the news on, they were still in part of our family discussion. I think that we have to teach, and I think we can teach our children to be critical thinkers and to object to decisions that are being made by our governments by governments that are hurting innocent people and damaging our planet. My mother, when I was growing up, uh, my mother talked about the similarities of par- parenting and patriotism. And she would say, if you see your child doing something that would harm your, herself or someone else, you're, gonna, you're going to intervene and can correct your child's behavior because you love them. She said, it's the same with our country. If I love my country, I'm not going to sit back and watch us hurt ourselves and others without trying to change the behavior. And I think that that's part of the conversation, is how do we not demonize people who are making the decisions, which can be challenging, especially when it's frustrating it's impacting us negatively. But how do we not demonize people, and how do we recognize that we have the ability to use our voices and to create change? Mm -hmm. And I guess in that process, advocating for policy, that is how we believe the world should be ordered.
2: Right. So what role do faith and spirituality play in that?
0: So, my daughter is now 10 years old. And what I'm conscious of is that no matter what, if it's a Disney movie with some violence in it, if it is something on the news, if it is the front page of the newspaper that she sees on her kitchen table, she feels other people's anguish very deeply. And she talks about what she sees and feels. I think if we're conscious of what is going on around us and what our children are picking up from conflicts in the home and schools and places of worship, our communities, our nation, and our world, we can easily become overwhelmed and feel hopeless. Mm
1: -hmm. And I
0: think for me, faith and spirituality remind us that there is a higher power. There is something greater than me at work. I also, because of my faith, I also become mindful of the importance of community, that each of us has the opportunity to make healthy, life-giving decisions. And most importantly, and I think this is, for me, an important learning point as someone who grew up in a social justice-oriented activist family, the only person's behavior that I can control is my own. Hmm. So I think that one of the things that when, you know, I grew up in North Carolina, um, was in elementary school during desegregation, when the school system was desegregating. And so because of my family's commitment to racial justice, have always had this sense of urgency, right, that, that these things need to be changed now. And I think that what can happen is that when I get too caught up in the urgency to stop the violence and oppression, hmm. I can become violent and oppressive, myself by running over people who may have a different way of seeking change. And so rather than being a, an ally for peace, I become part of the problem.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that when I'm
0: when I'm mindful that there is a higher power, when I'm mindful that there is something greater at work that I cannot see and cannot know, but that there are a whole bunch of us who have a role in making the world a better place, I'm not the only one that has a vision for what that looks like, then I can let go a little bit of the need to control it it doesn't mean that I'm not still working urgently to change it, but that the control, right, that I'm letting go of some of that and I'm not imposing my way on other people. I think the other thing that can happen, especially when I am part of a group that is responsible for decision-making, um, the guilt can pile on, right, because I am spared the harshest injustices, whether it's because of my class, whether it's because of my race, right, I'm spared all of that kind of... You know, I, I know that I'm negatively impacted by racism and classism, right? I, I believe as a person of faith that it damages my soul, but it doesn't look the same way as, as the outward experience of people of color or um, people living in poverty experiences. Mm-hmm. And one of my hopes for the work that I do is that people will begin moving from a place of guilt, which I think can be very um, debilitating, to believing that they have the ability to respond and that community matters. Because of our faith, we don't. We know that there's community around us, and we don't have to do it by ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: So I think that is um, such an important point. And you know, I I think that I I certainly believe that education reform, real education reform, cannot happen without compassion and cooperation and that there are different factions of this education reform conversation that are so focused on proving the other side wrong <laughs> that they get lost in that, and that they're, they are um, losing opportunities for collaboration that will benefit every student involved and every student that is being served by public schools in this country. Um, and, you know, I think that, certainly even in traditions like atheism and humanism there is a common thread of compassion and cooperation and understanding that you have a place in the world that the world is bigger than you are and teaching children from a standpoint of the world first or the universe first and then you know working inward from that i think is important so that as we are creating adults who are themselves then creating policy, that policy will reflect not just their self interests but will reflect the world and will will be mindful of how we are treating one another and so I think that you know we we certainly have to have conversations about how to educate children. Um, not only in our beliefs and in what's happening in our homes, but also in how to be respectful and supportive of other traditions and other beliefs and other values. Um, And I've seen you do this as a mother and as an educator for seminar groups. I I would love to hear you talk more about this idea of compassion and cooperation.
0: Yeah, I think that one of the things for me as an educator and an advocate for young people is realizing that I have to meet people where they are. And I think that there are people across the spectrum in terms of where they're coming from, and everyone has their own journey. And I think that when I look back at all the people who have been patient and compassionate toward me and encourage me to learn about something, a worldview or something that I thought I knew or I knew but I didn't really know. Um, there's a tremendous amount of it's a it's an incredible gift. And so what I what I believe is that what I've seen in myself, what I've seen in my children, what I've seen in young people with whom I work, is that I am able I'm better able to live out the values and my belief and commitment to social justice when I feel... when my self-worth and self-esteem are strongest, right? That that when I am loving myself, when I'm able to engage in believing that I have something of value to contribute to our community, that out of that space, that I can be my best self, which Mm -hmm. is promoting those values that I talk about. Mm -hmm. And I think, so for me, as I enter into conversation with young people, and with and teachers and with adults. It is how do I meet them in a way that they feel respected and they feel like their voices matter. And again, that there are multiple ways to see the world and that they believe right and they feel that their voices truly matter. Because I think there's so many times when people enter into a space to learn and there's an authority figure who's telling them what they should think and believe and so it's they don't necessarily have to take ownership of it. We don't have to take ownership of it. And often just kind of shut down and tune out because well, it doesn't pertain to me because it's not my voice.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One of the one of the people I work with talks about um exercising our moral muscles. And I think that one of the most challenging parts of parenting is responding thoughtfully to my children's questions. Because sometimes I don't know where they're coming from. I haven't anticipated them. I haven't thought about how to respond to that question. Oh, there's some that I do, but there are many that I don't. And Miles Horton, who founded the Highlander Research and Education Center, once said that we need to create an environment that teaches people what we want them to learn. Okay. And because I want my children to always trust that they can come to me no matter what has occurred, I have to start now by modeling that I value their questions and feelings and that I trust that they are thoughtful, loving people. So my children know that I have very strong, because of my faith, that I have very strong opinions and believe that all people are created in the image of God. And because of this, I have very strong expectations about how we will interact with friends and family, people we've just met, and how we care for the earth. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And I don't believe that I can ask other people, including the people that I work with, I don't believe that I can ask them to be vulnerable and open their hearts and minds to new ways of thinking without doing that myself. And so me, part of the part of the compassion and the cooperation is that I am willing to make myself vulnerable in those spaces, allow myself to be vulnerable in those spaces, and talk about where I fall down, and that, you know, I think it's easy for someone to say, oh, well, you're a social justice advocate. You do this for a living, and to have misconceptions as if any one of us is ever going to arrive and be there, you know, that I do things that are harmful, too, and I think that when when we can have those conversations honestly... Then we then we are equipping each other, and we're kind of entering into community to say, "Wait a minute, we need each other to hold, our, to hold us accountable and to help us become conscious of things that we can't see ourselves."
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I, you and I have talked about um, the book "Life of Pi" and the movie, um, which tried to treat in a couple of hours what is a very dense uh, novel. Um, and the the book was written by Jan Martel, and the the main character in the book is Pi. And uh, you know the, certainly the visual images that we see from the movie are you know this boy who's stranded on the the sea the open seas with a tiger in the boat. Um, but the book actually develops that character for you know the first half of the book before he's Ever on a boat And um, he's a very Interesting character He's very very connected to He feels very very connected to God, a God of his understanding And um, You know When my son who just turned 10 Was reading the book he, um, He was really grappling With the main character And how the main character Has chosen to be a Christian and a Hindu and a Muslim all at once, and one oh. of the main points of this book is, you know, all of this is true. All of the the beliefs are true, um, and and you know, Hinduism with its many gods and Christianity with its one God and and the Son of God and and um, the Islam faith with with its one God um, and anointed individuals who can deliver the message of God, you know, I think the message in the book is one that can be delivered to educators and parents to say all of this is true. And, you know, especially as you're dealing with interfaith classrooms where you have children who are coming from families who who have, you know, um, parents who are of different faiths, um, that you have to, to create a space um, you know as you're saying create a space in the classroom and for parents to create a space in the home where all of that is true and that at the same time you can be delivering <clears throat> the message of your own religion and of your own beliefs um, but also recognizing that all of that is true um, and so i i really you know i very much enjoyed the book. I thought the the movie was entertaining, um, but certainly could it it was very difficult. I think to deliver that message, um, you know, in, in a Hollywood film. I think they did the best they could with that. Um, but what do you think about this? You know, this idea of of you know really kind of interfaith dialogue and, and interfaith um, belief structures for children.
0: So the first job that I had out of college was as a full-time volunteer working with the interfaith conference in Metropolitan Washington. And one of the things that we did was designed a concert for all different faith traditions. And then also we had um, a dialogue for at that time with seven different faith traditions. And the question we did, we partnered with the Children's Defense Fund. And the question we asked was, what are our responsibilities to our children? And we sat around the table and talked about what our responsibilities are to our children. And I think that that's how when we do the policy work up here and we work in coalition is that the responses were very, very similar. Very, very similar. And so no matter how the how the understanding was framed or no matter what the Holy Scriptures talked about there was this deep sense, a deep belief that we have this responsibility to our children.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: think that you know, I think that there is a lot of talk, and there's a lot of religiosity,
1: hmm. and there
0: are a lot of people that talk about their faith and and what it means, and I think that our young people are smart enough to know and can see through us enough to know when we're actually living it and when we're just talking about it. Hmm. And so to me, I, have, I am of the school that believes that when we model our faith, when we model our beliefs, we model our values, that then people will take us more seriously. And then that's when the dialogue can happen. Um, Because I do think there is a lot of shared... There's so much that is shared, and so I think that that when... You know, the earlier question about the importance of spirituality and peace education is that I don't... Every faith tradition that I know of um, has some kind of message of hope. Right? But the reason that people subscribe to a particular religion, um, the reason that people that it is a core part of people's lives, however it is that they live it out, is because there is some message of hope. And I think that that is... And I think that the... And although religion is complex and there are all kinds of different conflicts that happen among different faith traditions in different parts of the world and in our own part of the world, I think that... It, you know, they they give us guidelines of how to live and be with one another. And so I don't, I think inherently, the faith traditions aren't in conflict with one another. It's, it's us who are human beings who make conflict out of that.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so I think that it's easy. I think if we just live our faith without having to put labels on it, that people can begin to, to see and to be. And I think that that's, that's when peace happens.
2: Well, I want to thank you for being here this morning. Um, Susan Burton is the director of the United Methodist Seminar Program on National and International Affairs on Capitol Hill. Thank you so much for being here, Susan.
0: Thank you, Allison.
2: You are now officially certified Know-It-All. It's about peace education in schools. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education, on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter find ABC on Facebook, and read my blog at alisonbrownconsulting.com. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week.
1: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at chumbacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VTW Group. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. Eighteen plus.